the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is key. In original intent, in the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world, there was no shame at all that existed. Have you ever felt ashamed? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Shame is the feeling that comes when lack or failure exists. And because of the sinful world we are born into, this is something everyone is challenged with. Today, David begins a teaching called Worthlessness and Shame, and in it he reveals ways the enemy tries to keep us stuck in a feeling of shame. Today, the issue of shame, the issue of shame. Uh, It's something that many, many people are struggling with, that inward embarrassment of something that you've done or something you feel about yourself that you just can't get rid of. So let's spend these next 35 minutes looking at the subject of shame and how we can begin to understand it. Let's begin by looking at the source of shame, where it all came from. It comes from the scripture, our insights in understanding the subject of shame. We first of all turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. We've looked at these verses dealing with marriage and parenting. Here it is again, one of the most important verses in all the Bible, quoted by Jesus, by Paul, and other places. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is key. In original intent, in the Garden of Eden, before sin came into the world, there was no shame at all that existed. Absolutely none. No feelings of inferiority, no feelings of defectiveness, no feelings of moral inadequacy, no hopeless hurt inside. Adam and Eve in a perfect, lived in a perfect relationship with God and with one another where there was absolutely no shame. Shame was not a part of God's original intent. Then we move to Genesis 3, where the fall occurred, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God and invited sin into the world, and now sin permeates every part of God's original, once-perfect creation, and inwardly, there's no longer union life in our souls. There's no longer peace within us. There are all kinds of fears that come. In fact, fear is the first negative emotion that's mentioned in the Bible. The second one has to do with shame. In Genesis 3, 7... Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Adam and Eve, in knowing their sin, their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. And now knowing they were naked, they feel shame. And so they put together loincloths over their private parts to hide their what, folks? Their shame. Shame. There's actually a good part of shame in our fallen condition. Uh, The good part of shame is that we feel embarrassment, especially as we look into the mirror of Jesus. You see, Jesus is God in human flesh, and in his perfect humanity, along with his perfect godliness, he reflects to us what God intended humanity to be. So as we look in the mirror of Jesus and see our own flaws and inadequacies, it should produce a good kind of shame that drives us to the cross where we receive forgiveness. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to it at the end of the message. 
But the bad part of shame is we reach the point where we no longer feel any shame about any of our sins. And Jeremiah, the great prophet in the Old Testament, talks about the Israelites having reached a point in their culture where he says they are a people who have forgotten how to blush. A people who have forgotten how to blush. That's the kind of feelings I have oftentimes as I look at the American culture. There's no shame at all in what we feel or do. We are a people who have forgotten how to blush. And of course, a nation corporately is only made up of individuals. And when individuals forget how to blush, when individuals have no shame whatsoever, they can't be driven to the cross, they can't change, and that ultimately causes a culture to spiral downward in a moral way to an ultimate abyss. So we want to look today at an understanding of shame that will drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ. First of all, let's look at the shapes of shame, and there are five of them here. They're all interconnected in a way, but there are nuances of difference that I think we need to cover. The first shape of shame is situational shame. Um, That's like when you're with a group of people and you trip over your shoelaces and there's embarrassment in your heart as you look clumsy and stupid in their eyes. I remember when I was in the third grade at our elementary school, every year at Halloween time, they would allow the kids to dress up in their Halloween outfits and wear them to school. And it was something all the kids looked forward to. But for some reason, one year they canceled it. The only problem was I didn't get the message. I don't know if I was sick the day was announced or the letter didn't come in the mail or what happened. I didn't get the announcement. So that day in excitement, I dressed up in my Halloween trick-or-treat costume and I dressed up as Zorro, the great television slash movie character with his sword who could fight anybody, make the sign of the Z whenever he would win. Zorro was my hero. So I show up at school that day dressed up as Zorro, black cap, black mask, black cape, black outfit, only to discover I was the only kid in the school who had dressed up in his Halloween outfit. You can imagine my embarrassment. I mean, my mom had even made the tiny little mustache right below my nose and above my upper lip, and I had to go into the restroom and wash all that off, tuck the black cape into my pants, uh, try to look as normal as I possibly could throughout the day, but throughout that day, and really for the next weeks, and actually even today when I think about it, my face flushes in shame. I, I have a sense of embarrassment. I blush. I think it was Mark Twain who said, human beings are the only animals who blush and we need to. (laughs) With situational shame, we sometimes need to. We just do something dumb and we feel embarrassment for it. But situational shame is different than cosmetic shame, which is the second kind of shame. What is that? That is when the culture defines beauty in a certain way. It's all cosmetic. It's all outward. And and that view of beauty drives people to believe they're someone that they're not. It, It drives them to spend countless millions of dollars on plastic surgery. It drives some women to anorexia and bulimia because their picture of beauty is thinness and they keep striving for that, thinking wrongly, of course, they're obese, even though the mirror, the mirror shows them that they're becoming increasingly thinner. 
A cosmetic shame drives people in their jobs to work harder and harder so they can have bigger houses and more and more materialism. Uh, Marilyn and I were on a vacation at, at a friend's condo who loaned it there to us for a week. And while we were there, a pipe broke and the man came in. And as he was fixing the pipe, he said, you know, it's interesting about this vacation area. The bigger the homes, the less they're used. Isn't that fascinating? The bigger the homes, the less they're used. It's like people have fallen prey to cosmetic shame. If they don't think, they keep moving up the ladder and can compare themselves to other people and be better than them, they just can't exist. And meanwhile, people who are lower on the ladder and just can't get up to that place of supposed acceptance, they feel continually shamed and drive themselves in a performance-based mentality to be successful. That's outward comparisons that lead to self-loathing, that lead to shame. Thirdly, there's inherited shame. It's what a major culture believes is acceptable. Uh, Many cultures in the world, not the American culture, which is more rooted in individualism than in the corporate mindset, in many cultures there is a shame and honor base, which drives the entire culture. So oftentimes uh, in Islamic cultures, for example, if you have a child who might convert from Islam to Christianity, the parents might kill the child. Why? Because the child has wrecked their understanding of honor and shame in their culture. The child has shamed the father, so the father must kill the child for doing so. Now, that's an extreme example, but cultures can define what's right and what's wrong, and when people don't live up to that, they feel shame. Fourthly, there's inferiority shame. That's the feelings of inadequacy. Um, It's the failure people feel when they lose a job or when their marriage fails. Um, It's the kind of failure I think Jesus must have felt when people were trying to recognize who he was. And some people would say, isn't that Jesus from Nazareth? Then the question would be asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And now that was not asked nicely. You know, can anything good come out of that nice little town called Nazareth? No, it was a question of scorn. It was a shame-based question because Nazareth was considered at the bottom of proper cities in the Israelite culture. So the question really was asked like this, can anything come good out of Nazareth? It's impossible. That is the armpit of all other cities here in this nation. So Jesus felt scorn simply because of his societal city from which he came. And fifth and finally, there's moral shame. And this is the one that produces the most shame in people's lives today. Uh, It is the feelings of inadequacy. Uh, It is the feeling that Joseph and Mary and and probably Jesus himself felt when people would whisper behind the scenes, she got pregnant out of wedlock. You know, the moral code of that day was no sex out of wedlock. And when she got pregnant and wasn't married to Joseph, there were whispers that most certainly didn't last just for a few years, but probably decades. When people asked the question, isn't that Jesus, Joseph's son? They weren't just inquiring about Jesus as a man. There was underneath it that scorn of, isn't he illegitimate? How dare he claim to be God himself? So that moral code that underwrites a society oftentimes causes shame. 
Many of you were forced to read in middle school or high school the book, The Scarlet A. Uh, It's the book of Esther Prim, who committed adultery, uh, had sex outside of marriage, and, and because of that, the community discovered it and forced her to wear a red A on her dress. Therefore, every place she went in the community, she was identified by her adultery. She became the adulterer, and the A on her dress symbolized how she had failed the moral code of the society, and therefore, she should be ashamed. It was a shame-based reality. But the truth is, many people today in our culture have at least unseen letters on their hearts that many of you think identify who you are. Uh, Some of you might have an A because you've committed adultery and you feel that defines you and you feel ashamed. Others of you have a big D, divorced or divorcee, and you identify with the fact you failed in your marriage. Other people have C, crazy. People have called you crazy and you think that's who you really are. Other people have B for bankrupt. You've failed in business and you've gone bankrupt and you think that now identifies who you really are. Some of you have a BP, two letters, bad parent. Your children have wandered away from God and you feel terrible about all of their wandering. Uh, You have an F for some of you for fired. Uh, You didn't live up to your boss's expectations or something happened in your job and you were fired. You see, your identity is wrapped up in your shame. Like Esther Prim, she's an adulterer. Now your identity is wrapped up in how you have failed. Bottom line is you see God and his character as kind of a probation officer. When you do well, he leaves you alone. But if you should ever mess up, He's going to come after you. And the tool he's going to use is pointing his eternal celestial bony finger at you and making you feel shame. So take a moment and just think about those places where your cheeks flush and you feel embarrassed by something you've done in your life, probably mostly a moral shame. Do you feel those feelings? Have they become alive to you now? Do you know the letter you've put on your chest to define who you are? My word to you today is don't get stuck here. Don't. And have a right view of God, not as a probation officer, not as a police person in the sky who's ready to get you whenever you do something wrong, but see God for who he really is, which leads to the next point. What is the solution for shame? Let me give you several ideas from God's word. First of all, the solution to shame is to go to Gilgal. G-I-L-G-A-L. Go to Gilgal. Now, what is Gilgal? Let me give you a brief history of what happened before the Israelites encamped at Gilgal. When Moses had led the Israelites from the captivity of Egypt, they still had very much a slave mentality. They viewed God as a probation officer, and they had been punished in the captivity. They never saw themselves as free. Even when God gave them the Ten Commandments and the law at Mount Sinai, they still had that slave mentality. They marched from Sinai 
to Kadesh Barnea at the foot of the promised land. They sent out 12 spies. Ten of them, though, came back seeing God as a probation officer, that God wasn't big enough to overcome the giants in the land. Two, Joshua and uh, Caleb said, no, our God's bigger than those problems in the land. Let's move forward. But the ten overcame the two who overcame the three million, and the people became afraid in, in unbelief. And God said, in Popeye theology, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. I'm not going to deal with these people who have such a slave mentality. So what did God do? He said, you're going to have to spend 40 years in the wilderness, one year after another, just lapping the wilderness until this generation of unbelievers dies out, and I can raise up a new generation who will believe what I tell them, who will have great faith. So that generation dies out, Moses dies, Joshua takes over and takes the people into the promised land. But before he does so, several things happen. As God divided the Red Sea to move the Israelites from Egypt into Sinai region, so God dries up the Jordan River, separating them in Kadesh Barnea into the promised land. And when he dries up the Jordan, they take 12 stones out of the Jordan and they cross it and they build an altar that's basically a circle. The stones are to remind them of a second chance of God's faithfulness, drying up not only the Red Sea, but also drying up the Jordan River. And then God demands all the, pe- the men to be circumcised. Now, what's circumcision? God commanded Abraham that his son and all males thereafter be circumcised. It was an outward sign of an inward covenant that God gave to all of the Jews. And it was a command. It was the special remembrance that God's promise is true. God would be faithful. God would deliver them. God would always help them whatever obstacle they would face. So they had the 12 stones in a circle. They had the circumcision among all the males then done. And the third thing that God does, he takes them to a place called Gilgal. And in Joshua chapter 5, verse 9, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David and I talk about the one letter that separates danger and anger in another clever Davidism. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and here is Jim Noble with the Dream Center Charlotte. Hello, my name is Jim Noble with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center. And Bo and I, the director of the Dream Center, just wanted to take a minute and tell you guys thank you. Moments of hope, David and Marilyn Chadwick, all of you there, Dean, we all have been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you've been there since 08 when we started King's Kitchen and that kind of grew into the Dream Center and the meals we've fed the last eight weeks, probably exceeding 55,000 now, I guess. Uh, we're so grateful you guys have made such an impact in the city by reaching out to those that have needs greater than we have. And uh, what do you think, Bo? Yeah, so it's been amazing to, to just watch the, the work that's happened. Um, with the meals as they've gone out, you know, uh, we, I always tell people it's not about the food, it's about the relationships that are formed and the ministry that takes place. And so, um, and JT Williams and Tom Westboro and Reed Park, I mean, it has opened up doors that we never thought would be open. Um, you know, we've seen people come out um, and just welcomed us with open arms, just so grateful for the meals. And, and we just thank 
few moments of hope and just this couldn't be this wouldn't be possible without you guys and you know uh the, the first call we made uh when we decided to go this route and provide these meals was the moments of hope and it was uh, a phone call that was met with a resounding yes and so we're so appreciative of you guys and just um everything you all do for us and for the kingdom and not only that but you uh, also set into our kitchen in the dream center now this week started producing meals there and as the restaurants open back up all the meals will shift to the dream center with the kitchen you helped us do so we're so grateful for you guys god bless you god bless moments of hope and we just pray an unlimited return harvest on the seed you sowed into this ministry thank you very much I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, Jen. Great to be with you as well. Well, today we come to one of the clever sayings that you've come up with that really helps us to keep our reactions in check. This Davidism is called Only One Letter Separates Danger and Anger. Can you tell us more about this one? Yeah, guess what that letter is, Jen? D? It's the D, exactly, <laughs> the letter D. So what happens when we don't control our anger? Danger. Hmm. There's the D in front of the anger. Danger, problems, difficulties, pain. Whether it's a saying or doing something we later regret, we can cause harm to another person. Well, here's an example. Uh, think about the times you say, well, I just lost my temper. Hmm. Well, dear friends, may I say to you, you don't lose your temper. You choose to allow your temper to rage out of control. And this reckless anger always has danger lurking nearby. Proverbs 14, 16 is a verse our listeners may want to go to to study today. So think about this, Jen. Um, I remember when I was a kid growing up and we had, you know, dial phones at home. Uh, my mom. What's that? What's it? No, I'm Oh, come on. You're uh, <laughs> definitely a Gen X or millennial or whatever. Anyway, uh, the phone would ring and my mom would be really angry at us kids or three of us. And she would be getting on us and telling us how we were misbehaving. And again, the phone would ring and she'd go from, why are you kids doing this? She'd pick up the phone and go, hello, <laughs> in her Southern drawl. And it came upon me later on as I thought about those times, you control your anger. Wow. You make a decision whether you want to choose to continue in your anger or not. So I think everybody needs to remember this. There is a time for righteous anger. We should feel anger toward things that God hates, like the taking of life and abortion, sex trafficking, hunger issues, clean water, social justice issues. All of those are things that we need to be angry against. Against. Jesus showed us his righteous anger when he overthrew the temple. Just be careful about unabated anger towards someone. That's where danger resides. Mm. So the next time you see your temper flaring, know it's a choice and realize there's only one letter that separates anger from danger, and that's the D. Make sure you control your anger. Well, in this age and time with with um, Alexa always listening and Siri <laughs> right at your wrist, you know, it, it really has been something that has caused me to pause in a good way. Like, 
somebody's always listening and I need to keep my reactions in check. So it's a modern tool to help keep my anger in check. Yeah. And for all married folks out there, let's remind you that Paul said, don't let the sun go down on your anger because anger can fester inside and cause a root of bitterness to occur. And that can defile all the people in your sphere of influence. Yeah. That can really change who you are kind of intrinsically from the inside out. That's a good, good parallel there. Thank you so much, David, for these insights. I'm really enjoying these Davidisms, and I know our listeners are too. Well, thank you, Jen. My pleasure. And if any listener would like them in written form to come to their inbox at 7 a.m. every morning, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can subscribe there. It's from my heart to yours to help your day begin with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from a series called Heartbeats from our online worship service. You can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope delivered every morning to your inbox. And also check out David's weekly HopeCast, They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking that you pray for our frontline workers administering the COVID-19 vaccine.